Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in New Orleans, this is a special edition of Out to Lunch, New Orleans at the Crossroads, hosted by Tulane University Freeman School of Business professor and director of the Birkenrode Reports, Peter Raschuti. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to this special edition of Out to Lunch, New Orleans at the Crossroads. We've been at the crossroads before. If we wanted to list every economic boom and bust cycle in New Orleans, we could go back to the very first flood in 1719 when Bienville was still building the first settlements. We survived that one and we've survived other attempts at devastation. Most recently, after 2005, we did way more than bounce back from Hurricane Katrina. The restoration of the city resulted in a massive economic boom. And for the first time in around 40 years, a net migration gain. In what could only be described as a shocking surprise to those of us living here, New Orleans went from being a place you left if you wanted to start any sort of high-achieving career to a place where smart, young, entrepreneurial people moved to to start a business. The city changed markedly. We started discussing issues we'd never had to confront before. Gentrification, cost of living increases, prohibitive rents, uh, property tax hikes. Before we knew it, we had more restaurants than we had before the hurricane. A couple of years ago, the city came up with a more accurate way of counting how many tourists were coming here and discovered it's way more than we had thought. The real number of tourists is around 19 million a year. Things, it seemed, couldn't have been going much better for New Orleans. Then one day in March 2020, all that came to a sudden stop. Apparently, thanks to Mardi Gras a month earlier, New Orleans had unknowingly become a hotspot for the novel coronavirus COVID-19. We went into a mode called lockdown, which was kind of like a voluntary house arrest. At first, it didn't seem too bad, even for businesses who had to temporarily close their doors. But what was going to be a few weeks of semi-vacation where those who could work from home and those who couldn't collected more money in unemployment insurance than they were making at work has turned into something else. Months later, the 19 million tourists are gone. We don't know how, when, or if they're ever going to come back in the numbers we knew before. Entrepreneurs are struggling to survive. Many small businesses that have managed to reopen are making do with significantly less revenue and are forced to lay off staff. Under occupational restrictions and because of people's continued fear of catching the virus, restaurants are starving for business. Some notable restaurants are already closed for good. Unemployment is at an historic high and our world-famous live music industry is shut down. So what are we going to do? We can cross our fingers and hope that everything eventually bounces back like it has every other time we've had a disaster for 300 years. Or plan B, we can use an enormous amount of talent and resources that the last dilemma delivered to us on the crest of the migration and economic wave and proactively take action to change the direction of the city so we can cope with and even capitalize on the new reality. And that 
Plan B is what we're doing here today. My guests on this special edition of Out to Lunch are all dealing with the economic impact of the pandemic. Grayson Gill is the owner of Belgard Bakery. Until the end of July, when he was forced to close, hopefully temporarily, Belgard operated a local retail bakery. It also shipped flour, grits, and pasta nationwide and provided products to more than 120 restaurants. In 2020, Grayson Gill was a finalist for the James Beard Award, the Academy Awards of Food, for Outstanding Baker. Grayson, welcomed out to lunch. Eric Cook is a combat veteran who served six years in the United States Marine Corps. After his military career, Eric returned to his native New Orleans and became a chef. Eric has cooked at some of New Orleans' finest restaurants, including Commander's Palace, until July of 2020 when it was forced to close, hopefully temporarily. Eric was owner and executive chef at his own restaurant, Grigri, in the Lower Garden District. Eric, welcomed out to lunch. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Carol Markowitz is COO and Senior Vice President of Finance at Loyola University. Carol was previously the founding executive director of NOKI, New Orleans Culinary and Hospitality Institute. She worked in corporate finance in Los Angeles and has an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Carol, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks, Peter. Matt Wisdom is founder and CEO of New Orleans-based TurboSquid. TurboSquid is the Amazon.com of 3D models. It's the world's leading marketplace for the type of 3D models used in everything from movies and video games to commercials and teaching tools. Matt, welcome out to lunch. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Holly Devon is a writer, senior editor at Anti-Gravity Magazine, and founding editor of The Iron Lattice at a New Orleans quarterly arts publication. Holly has written extensively about tourism and urban planning in New Orleans. Holly, welcomed out to lunch. Thanks so much for having me. Kristen Palmer is a member of the New Orleans City Council, representing District C, which includes Algiers, the French Quarter, the Marigny, Treme, St. Rock, and Bywater neighborhoods. Thank Kristen, you, welcomed out to lunch. Thank you. Kristen, you played a very active role in the city's recovery from Hurricane Katrina. You were the executive director of an organization called Rebuilding Together. At one point, you were coordinating 10,000 volunteers. That was before you were on the city council. Is there one thing you learned from your Katrina recovery experience that you wish the city had gotten right? Now that you're part of the city government, you can make it happen. What does the recovering economy need most the city to do? Well, you know, I think there are some interesting parallels between what happened with Katrina versus now. You know, I was in housing um, after Katrina. And so, you know, I was, like you said, I was, I was involved. But even before Katrina, I was involved in rebuilding houses for low-income elderly disabled homeowners all over in neighborhoods all over the city. And, you know, when Katrina hit, all of a sudden, everybody was having this conversation about housing and about poverty and what that meant to the city. And I think, um, and what the, what the sense of place means, right? And that really kind of drove the conversation of how we we're going to come back and how we're going to rebuild. Um, fast forward to today, you know, when I came back, I spoke a lot about sustainable tourism and what that means and what that looks like. And, and, and one of the negative impacts, right, was um, the short-term rental and how that really led to increased property values, pushing folks out of a lot of the neighborhoods, especially like, you know, my district, French Quarter, Mary, Bywater, Trinet, St. Rock. And, you know, at that point, 
you couldn't see the forest through the trees when we were rebuilding. You never thought that there would ever be a lack of housing in a way, right? Because we always were surrounded by all these vacant blighted housing. Then you then you look at post and you look at post COVID. I think what's happened is almost the same thing with housing and having that conversation as is with the tourism industry and what that means and the gig economy and how vulnerable it is, right? And so I actually think now is more of a time to talk about sustainable tourism and what that looks like moving forward and how we can build a more sustainable model. Because, you know, we're, what I'm seeing in the streets every day, and, you know, we were operating food pantries starting in March and we haven't stopped yet. And the immediacy of the needs two weeks after shutdown, where people um, in the hospitality industry could not afford food um, and, and basic needs and that were coming, and we still haven't really seen a shutoff of that, I think speaks to the vulnerability of, of our industry. And even the Brookings Institute post-COVID, you know, they have a list of the cities that are gonna be the hardest to come back. And New Orleans is in the top 10 and that's specifically linked to our reliance of the tourism industry and hospitality industry, I should say. And so to me, the question is, and, and I love the hospitality industry. I think like all of us here, you know, I am working my way through college, waiting tables, tending bar, doing all those kinds of things. And I think it's a great industry, but we have to figure out a way and a model of doing it better. And I just think sustainable tourism is part of that. Holly, I know you've uh, written a lot about tourism. Do you think we can, um, geez, tough way to put this, but get fewer tourists and better tourists? Uh, less uh, less big-ass beers and more people go going to the Ogden Museum of Art or something like that? Um, definitely. I think that going forward, one of the things that we can focus on is how to make an economy that primarily um, is for ourselves and each other. And, you know, we love restaurants. We love bars we love great music so if we are investing our money and energy into those places tourists will also want to be a part of that no one throws a better party than a new orleanian we don't uh need to do much the city sells itself um i think that part of the problem is we have a lot of uh structures in place right now in government that is um taking a lot of the tourism money and diverting it uh, away from the people that need it the most. Um, so I think there are actually, a, this is a great opportunity to change some things that have been holding us back for a long time. Um, and if we can start looking at our government structures, um, particularly our tax structures, I think that there is a, a lot we can do to just shift the conversation. Um, away from who we're attracting specifically in terms of tourism, but um, how we're managing that income. New Orleans is a, a you know, city of 400,000 people, but many of our businesses are built around a customer base of millions of people, and namely the 19 million tourists who come here every year. And now that the tourists have suddenly stopped coming, we're discovering that a number of businesses simply can't keep their doors open without them. Uh, the question I want to put to you now is, how workable is that business model? Should we embrace it and try to attract as many tourists to get back here as quickly as possible? Or should we be looking at pitching local businesses at a level that is proportionate with the permanent population? Grayson, where do you come down on this? Um, that's a tough question in the sense that there's a lot, of, a lot of answers to that. But I think it's critical, and Holly picked up on it briefly, is that I'm, what I'm looking for is a structural change and a systemic change. And I feel like just like Katrina, I wasn't here for Katrina. I moved here in 2009, but 
I think that COVID's forcing all of us to change in the same way that Katrina did, whether we want to or not. So now is an opportunity to control that change and to be amicable to that change, whether we like it or not, as opposed to resist it or fight it. But um, I don't think there's going to be band-aids or anything, you know, aspirins for the cancer that we can approach any further when it comes to the structural changes that we need to make in the city, whether that's tourism or economy or public health or transportation or criminal justice reform, like all of these things, I think now is a time to systemically change those things. Um, so when it comes to focusing on a more local audience in terms of a clientele for a business, yeah, I think it's critical that we that we do our best for that and that we approximate that. I don't feel like as a business owner, I was irresponsible in terms of my growth or my overhead. Um, I had a business model that was predicated on wholesale and the majority of my wholesale customers weren't necessarily themselves predicated on tourism, but just the absolute disruption of the city and most critically how, not just as New Orleanians, but how as Americans we eat, where we go to Costco or we go to Sam's Club or we go to Rouse's one day a week, that really, that really denigrates and hurts small people like me, um, where you don't have a clearinghouse in New Orleans for small local vendors as myself. And it, is a, it is a city that's very much predicated on the car culture. Um, so it would be it would be great to have a neighborhood cafe in every neighborhood. I live in Miss Palmer's district, and there's plenty of neighborhood cafes that we have there. But it's it's a great question, Peter, that I don't necessarily have an answer to. Is that I feel like historically and traditionally the city does have the precedent for the intimacy of commerce between neighbors and between a neighborhood. And I think that like the rest of America, we lost that because of cars and because of suburbs and because of highways. Um, but there is a lot of precedent in New Orleans with the public market system. Um, so the city still owns the um, St. Rock Market, which is also in this Palmer's district. That's a city-owned building. And for those listeners that don't know, New Orleans up until about World War II had about 30 to 35 public market buildings that were owned by the city, very much like the French market, where local artisans like me or like a butcher or whomever, a vegetable grower could sell with a pretty fair value rent to businesses or neighborhoods and that was populated and pocketed strategically throughout neighborhoods of the city and I think that's something critical um, that we need help from from the government. I, I don't want to look to capitalism or private enterprise as being um, the solution for I think these really intimate ancient needs for commerce and the commerce of food and I really think the government needs to step in and take not just a role but I think take 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 the baggage and the weight off of small people like myself and like Eric, for example, to make things like that happen. I don't think that we need to rely on the private market um, to, to privatize public needs and public solutions. I think that the public in the form of the local government should be the ones that are stepping up to provide those solutions for people like myself and, and to a lesser extent, Eric. Um, Eric's more of a chef, but in terms of small artisans like me, um, I think it's critical that the city do its do what it can and use current resources like let's say the St. Rock Market, which which we own, we own that building, um, and make it a, a real market. You know, make it a place for people to go and eat fresh, healthy local food, and that's good not just for the economy but also for ecology in terms of what what we're doing to our land and the surrounding farms and everything else. You know, Matt, um, I wanted to ask you, you've been really one of the most, the city's most successful entrepreneurs. And um, we talk about diversifying the economy. 
uh, one of the problems we really have, I mean, whether or not anyone wants to talk about it, is we can get some companies to move here, but it's kind of a tough sell. I mean, we're we're weird. You know, they want uh, people want kind of a cookie cutter <laughs> place to go to. And uh, what would he? What would we need to do on the entrepreneurial side to to make make more Matt Wisdoms? Well, the entrepreneurial side. Thank you for the all, all the, the lead up there. The entrepreneurial side is we're growing. We're doing better than we ever were. It's another one of those things. It's another post Katrina thing. We've been fighting this fight to have people want to start companies here. The number of times I've been in conversations with people trying to come here who are like, hey, we, you know, what's the school situation? They need public schools they can count on. And literally, if they were like, we could get a school as good as a Lusher or a Franklin or whatever and be guaranteed that, we'd be in a totally different landscape. Like that is the number one thing is like a reliable school system that I end up dealing with. But I'd say like, just in terms of the, some of the questions you've been asking, I think about this sort of two ways. What we've just had happen to us separate from the pandemic is the future just got rushed forward at us about what things are going to look like five, 10 years down the this line. This is Matt Wisdom. And what you're seeing is that Wall Street and the rest of this have literally bet trillions of dollars on the vision of machines delivering food to us and running things and automation, Amazon. So I think that there's like, there's the near term, sorry, that Grayson was talking about. There's like, there's the near term and like what our experiences are. But just as a city, the part that's sort of freaking me out, my partner, she just dropped into Whole Foods and Metairie, stopped in. A lot of it's sectioned off for Amazon Prime pickers who are just grabbing stuff as fast as they can and walking out. And there's a dystopian side of this, which is like, right, how are we eating? There is some portion of what's happening very soon is machines are going to be sourcing everything and sending it to us at a cheap cost. And then there's the local artisan social experience that's on the other side where you go to seek out people, have food that's hand-grown, we know why it's there. And that bifurcation has happened at lightning speed. And we've just now seen what it looks like. And it's a bit terrifying. New Orleans is that place where we'll get, like people want the experience. So like, how do we supply that part that's the human experience here? That's, the, that's why people love us and that's the big deal. The entrepreneurial side is people want that and getting companies so we have an office space down in downtown, 13,000 square feet, zero people want to work there now, totally empty. Every single month, nobody will go back. We're sitting there, there's a big diffusion from California, from New York, some of that's getting away from hotspots, but people don't want to pay those rents. So the question is on balance, um, TurboScoot will have some people who now you can work anywhere from, you know, as long as you do your job, some people move away, some people move here. New Orleans like is going to be competing for a great place to live against all these super expensive cities, whether it's San Francisco or other areas. Will we win on balance? Because a lot of people are going to work from home. So there's a reshuffling that's happening that is, uh, it's hard to understand where we are. We're positioned to win on some of that stuff, but it, there's so many different movement movements happening that it's, um, it's opportunity, it's terrifying. There are ways that we can win, but it's going to be disruptive. Like, and a little bit frightening. You know, Matt, one of the things you mentioned there that really grabbed me was the idea that we we're moving in this direction anyway. It just it just put it on steroids and a faster track. Can I ask Matt a question? Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, um, cities like Tulsa and Savannah are really going after and having marketing campaigns, going after that model of people can work from home now, they can work anywhere they want. How do we attract them to our city? Because basically you don't have to worry about 
a startup company, right? They already come with revenue. They already come with a job. Um, and so they are marketing their quality of life um, as opposed to trying to get a whole, a whole, you know, whole business to move. And it seems like it's something that I've been talking about. Peter, you and I have been talking about that on the calls. Um, is that is does New Orleans have a space for that? I, I mean, I hear you about schools, and you and I, you know, our kids went to the same school, and we we appreciate that. But I do think when you talk about millennials and younger folks that don't have children, you know, this is still a very real city with a soul. Um, and we have we have we're a walkable city. We have we have funky businesses. We have a, a very unique quality of life. And we're, we're losing, we were losing population as of last year. Is there a space for us to also market our city to people that can work from home? I think that's, I think we're going to have to do that because that's going to be an increasing portion of both, of both the workforce, but also the income, the revenue, like the amount of allocation of income is going to go to people who can work from anywhere at an increasing pace. We want them here and we can do it. And I agree with you. There's a, there's that question of like, once you start hitting the kids situation and then you start hitting the school situation and that that's a different problem. And we're doing better than we have on the schools and a lot of stuff. But I, I think that's critical because we do have that high culture piece and the low cost piece to offer to folks. Like, I, I think that's gelling a vision around where we are and where we're going to be, I think is really important. And that's got to be a part of it. Good, because you see, I think that we're going to lose a lot of our restaurants, right? And we talk about how do we flip it so that we can, make, if we have more restaurants per capita, then we can, you know, I know we all love to eat out. I'd love to eat out every single night, but it's not sustainable. And I feel like if we can get folks coming in that can add to it, it would also help. Just to respond to that, um, I think one of the things I'm hearing, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I have some concern when I'm, I'm hearing that coming from a sector of the population that is dealing with the high cost of living as it is. And I think we all have to be really conscientious that when you are having people making San Francisco incomes in a city like New Orleans, then that's going to really change the game for um, a lot of us that are still struggling. So something I've been thinking a lot about is less how do we attract more money because that is a lot of the model that we're working with right now and more how do we reshuffle the resources we already have. I think is that Gavin. is really important for us to take a look at the major economic shifts that are going on um, in the uh, vulnerable populations of New Orleans. So ever since this hit, I, Kristen mentioned this earlier about food banks, things like that. The mutual aid societies have been doing extraordinary work. Uh, people have been getting fed. Uh, their people are getting free plants, gardening. You know, there are real food resources that are completely underutilized right now that might go great in a place like the St. Rock Market, um, that there is an economic shift that's happening away from just trying to generate more income and really trying to reshuffle the resources, um, particularly you know, downtown, um, a lot of these areas. So that's something that's going on in that part of the population. I think that w if, they were if, if they were able to flourish without having to deal with the cost of living that we have right now, I think we could see some really exciting changes. But right now, if we look at something like the rent problem, I, something that I've been really concerned about is uh, nonprofit property tax exemptions. So this is something that New Orleans has a huge problem with, um, where uh, nonprofits are pretty much given carte blanche um, for uh, property tax exemptions and that it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to public good. Um, 
it, this could be properties used for used commercially. Um, so there's, I, I believe in 2016, uh, the Bureau of Governmental Reporting found that 60% uh, of properties were off the tax roll. So if, if we look at that, right, if we can lower property taxes, but include more properties as part of the taxable um, pool, then we're able to take some of the heat off of the cost of living. And we don't necessarily need to market ourselves to other people. Um, what do you think, uh, Carol? Uh, you know, we weren't just talking about schools. Obviously, you could have religious institutions, a bunch of folks, uh, hospitals, uh, don't, any nonprofits that uh, don't pay taxes. But uh, um, where can the money come from, Carol? You know, one of the things that always concerns me is when you have these conversations, the only other side is raised sales taxes, which is very, you know, it's a regressionary tax. And um, um, where does the money come from, Carol? There's secret pockets we can find? Well, <laughs> <laughs> this might not be a direct answer to that question, but it, I, I really want to, I want to give voice to something that I've been very passionate about over the last several years, you know, in my involvement with the Culinary Institute is that I think what this pandemic has really brought to light, as we've talked about so much already, is like our over-reliance on tourism. And as it relates to food, I think that I, I see a huge, broad food economy as going from plow to plate, right? And there's like this is production, Martin, there's packaging, there's marketing, there's University. distribution. I mean, there's a whole industry with different segments of that. And I would say that we only focus predominantly on the plate side of it, right? For the, for the most part. And I think I just can't help but wonder why when I see other cities that have invested not even huge amounts of dollars, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, but investing thoughtfully in a strategic set, a strategic plan that then helps inform the development of a comprehensive food policy that matches the actual assets of the, the region or the city's resources, including its people, and not trying to mismatch plans and policies with the reality of who our community is and what education levels they have and all of those things. I mean, that to me is like, I mean, something that I think is insanity that we haven't done yet as a city of New Orleans that claims of the three pillars it stands on is just music, architecture, and food. There's so much there. And you talk about diversifying your, diversifying your economy. I'm sorry, Matt, but forget about tech for a minute. Forget about medical. Moving upwards in the supply chain of what, how does that food get on a plate that's being served to you by your minimum wage server who has to rely on tips? How about thinking of the ways that we can diversify even by expanding what the food economy could do for us here in our own region that can provide better wages, you know, more secure jobs in a way that aligns with who our community is already. They don't need to go to medical school to, to necessarily be um, working in production and in Grayson Gill's huge new factory that's supplying flour to the whole world or what have you. You know, these are jobs that our community can probably are attainable to our community with some training, right? And I just, it's just mind boggling that we put investments in things like this big, very expensive medical center and other things, but we're not looking at what's right under our nose, which is why everyone comes here, which is that thing that we serve on the plate with our New Orleans style service and hospitality. Let's take advantage of how much, how much upside is there if we really think through diversifying 
even within the food economy. And I think it's no irony that of the six of us on the call that three of us are either in or have had some heavy involvement in hospitality and culinary and food. I just, I think that this could be a major opportunity for us if we can get enough support for some very limited dollars and coming up with a big master plan and policy for, for the city of New Orleans as it relates to its true strategic food policy. And just to interject really this quick, is Holly there, Devin. there isn't a secret pot of money. There is a blatant uh, pot of money uh, all in the convention center. Uh, the convention center is sitting on $200 million in reserves. Um, and you know that's something that we could probably all use soon. Um, the con the convention center, uh, the the Ernest Morial Authority, the Louisiana Stadium and Exposition, um, and uh, New Orleans and Company—they're all receiving. New Orleans and Company receives twenty-one point one million dollars a year. Um, I'm I've been researching this issue for months. I still don't really know what they do. Um, there, we have the money. We just need to re reallocate it. Can I, can I say we don't actually have the money? I mean, I, I just okay, want to be really clear that the state and the state allocated a certain way. And this, this administration, member, this Kristen council Paul. and previous ones have consistently gone to the state to try to retool the, um, you know, the heads and beds taxes and have a more equitable distribution. But, you know, the problem is when you go to Baton Rouge, our, our delegation is the minority and we're funding the rest of the state. I'm not saying not to go after it. I think we have to, I think it's inequitable. It goes along with the whole concept of, of not having sustainable tourism. It is technically, it should be our money because it comes on the backs of us. But the reality is, is that they consistently take it from us in Baton Rouge and we're, we're outvoted, right? And, um, and I just wanna be clear about that because often we, you know, we throw around this money and they're like, well, just go get it. You know, you, you city leaders should go get it. And it, it, trust me, I was on a conference call with, with culture bears yesterday for three hours about this very thing. Like, how do we get money to the people that we market the city from and we take from and they have issues with affordable housing and, and, and food resources and all these things as well. But we have to be very real about where it comes from. And I also just want to make another statement real quick that, you know, and you and I have had conversations before, but if a city loses population and doesn't grow, it dies, just like any business. And if we don't attract people, and if we don't bring in new, new, new folks or whatever, or, or even market to the people that we lost, which would be my high point, right? Market in Atlanta and Houston, we're gonna die. Infrastructure of the city at our zenith population was for 623,000 people. When Katrina hit, we had 473,000 people. Today, we have 400,000 people. When we talk about money, we have to realize that we're dealing with an infrastructure for, for a population of 600,000 people that we don't have, who aren't paying into the tax base. So we are consistently going to be at a loss if we don't increase our population base because we're paying for this infrastructure for a much larger city. Absolutely. You know? And that, it's and not so, a simple so issue. I, I know it sounds weird, and I, and I am like 100% with you, like we need to market to get folks that we lost first. I mean, I, I also think that we have to bring everybody in here because you know the reason we have high cost of living is because we have a shrinking tax base because we're not putting enough housing on the market and it doesn't matter what if it's just for affordable or market rate we are not building housing to the degree that we should be building housing because it's really friggin hard to do business in this town 
and I can go on for that for a while. But I mean, you know, this isn't about housing. But anyway, so I just wanted to interject. I'm sorry. No, I agree with you. And I, I think that it's just to be clear, I, I know it's a state issue. And the, the for instance, the nonprofit ta tax exemptions, that's the Louisiana Constitution. So that's I'm with you 100%. And I'm with you yeah, and we, and we have to we have to have this conversation as a state as well. And I think that you made a really good point there. But go on ahead. Look, the orthopedic surgeons come in. I don't know if they still come, but like, what is the New Orleans and company or what are they doing? Right. Those folks come and if you at least for me, talk to different restaurateurs, they tell you they spend a lot of surgeons drop a lot of money in the restaurants. It's good for the city. This is what Peter was saying, I think, was like, who are the tourists? Like, who are people who are coming who are like buying into our culture and, and doing that? Like, that's that's a great convention. In my world, most people don't love conventions. And so this is a question. Was that whole business gone? I mean, we wrote that out of all of our budgets. Nobody wants to go anymore. There's Zoom conventions, which is a horror show just unto itself. Like, I don't know what the situation is with the convention center at all. I mean, I don't know that that business comes back. I wanted to for the sake of our city in terms of the orthopedic surgeons. We want them, you know, we, we want people to come and enjoy this. But that's another possible casualty is that you don't have to spend all this money to go and have people, you know, your, your staff leave and be unproductive in terms of the direct line of work for a week so they can go party in another city. Like, it's not clear that businesses are going to keep doing that. You know, when people in the media... Uh talk about New Orleans, they, they generally lead off with something like uh, New Orleans is best known for its food and music. But by food, what they really mean is restaurants, uh, Commander's Palace, Emeralds, Bayona, Arno's, Galatoire's, and a, and a host of other restaurants, too numerous to name, because there are over 1,400 of them. On July 24th, uh, Mayor Cantrell put the city into shock when she announced that in order to flatten the curve of the virus infection, she was going to d discourage people from hanging out on the street by outlawing drinks to go. Uh, one of the immediate unintended consequences of this decision was to hurt restaurants. Uh, restaurants who were struggling to survive were selling meals to go along with meals they were selling drinks to go. Drinks are around 30% of a restaurant's income. For music clubs, that's probably closer to 100%. So when we say we're known for food and music, the truth is that neither our restaurants or our live music industry can survive without alcohol. The, the answer to this next question might be just a flat no, but while we're rethinking the economy of the city, we have to ask it. The question is, if our goal is a diversified economy, do we need to find a way to sell food and music that doesn't depend on alcohol? Eric. I gotta have you lead off on this. Well, you know, I wanna I wanna follow up. You know, when we we talked about earlier, they said, you know, what does New Orleans really have? And, and we mentioned that it was music, uh, architecture, and food. You know, what I've always said, I've always, you know, since you know, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, and I, I've watched the city change over my life. And I'm 50 years old, and I've seen a lot of changes go on. Um, I was here during Katrina. Obviously, I stayed in town. Um, you know, and it, it's made all these different changes along the way, but you watched it, the companies leave, you watched, you know, we used to be the most powerful port in, in the nation, you know, and that's the first thing my mind always goes to is what happened to our port, you know, and for me, New Orleans, I've always told people that we're food, music, and booze, and that's pretty much it, because we've lost our Fortune 500s, we've lost the oil business, our port, to me, you know, I, I, I don't see a growth in the port, I see, um, you know, we're, we're switching it to be some kind of Disneyland cruise ship terminal. And I think we're losing what we talked about earlier with the effort to bring that plow to plate type situation to Orleans for what we really represent as a city. 
Yeah, we've got this great 300-year-old culture. We've got the French Quarter. But the French Quarter doesn't get half of the, the attention it should get because, you know, 40% of it that people visit is just filthy and dirty and bars, and that's it, you know? And our riverfront, yeah, we, we work. It's changed. Just, we try and beautify and do some things. But I always think, like, our amazing natural resources that we have here in South Louisiana should funnel right through the city of New Orleans. And unfortunately for us as restaurant owners, we can't buy a lot of our own seafood. A lot, most, you know, you can't buy redfish for a restaurant in New Orleans in Louisiana. And people don't really know that. Like anything you see in, in a restaurant in Louisiana or in New Orleans that they call redfish is not coming from Louisiana because we're not allowed to, because there's restrictions on us. We have to buy from Texas. We have to buy from the Carolinas. We have to buy from anywhere else but Louisiana because those restrictions are on restaurants because of, whatever moratoriums or you know we've lost our coastline you know if you look at the gulf states we've i've had conversations with uh lieutenant governor and members of the wildlife and fishery department about what happened to our coastline five gulf states have 21 miles of, of state shore of state coast louisiana has 10 or 11 10 or 11 miles we've lost 10 miles of our own coast for other states to come into and take our natural resources to distribute and go away. No one manages resources better than Louisiana. There's four ports of entry you can come in Louisiana to manage seafood. Four. You look at a state like Florida, there's probably, you know, 2,700. We control what comes in and out of our waters. But unfortunately, more people come into our waters and take it away. We look at redfish. We look at shrimp. We look at crabs. Things like that, just to name seafood. And it goes away. I think, you know, you talk about you know, restaurants and, and the conversation people immediately go to and they think about New Orleans, oh, it's such a great food town. But that great food town is the hardest town in the world to do food in. To operate a business and restaurants in New Orleans is the hardest thing in the world. Besides not having access to your own resources or the prices being elevated through the roof when literally, you know, I, I live in your, I'm in Algiers, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm a 20 minute drive from throwing a, a line in the water and catching redfish and trout. And you know, I can pick up fresh shrimp off the side of the road. But in a restaurant, you know, that that little bit of distance from where that shrimp comes from to where it hits the distributor to where it goes to the restaurant. You're talking about sometimes a, a five, six hundred percent markup, you know, that goes from what those fishermen spend to catch all that fish and that shrimp on fuel and just their own that's their livelihood their homes their family their education to get that product into market goes to a distributor then goes to restaurants and it's insane what we pay for that kind of stuff you know so we're hammering ourselves on our own natural resources which really doesn't make any sense to me you know and we talk about taxation we talk about we mentioned it's a hard place to do business in in new orleans it is i'd love to see the port of new orleans come back why, you know, one of my favorite things to do when, when I leave uh, New Orleans and travel, you know, I usually go down to Florida. There's a place in Pensacola called Joe Patty's, and it's an amazing seafood market where boats actually back up to it. And you can walk in this huge, it's basically a giant seafood market you can walk into, and fresh seafood is everywhere. Where can you find seafood like that in New Orleans, anywhere that's not a grocery store chain? Why is there not a seafood market? You know, New Orleans is built on that river. Steamboats coming up, dropping off oysters, you know, bringing in fresh seafood, delivering right to the docks of our city. Where has that gone? That's been manipulated and taken away. It's become 
taking away from the people who actually work on those boats and in those fields who bring us our amazing the rice the shrimp the fish the oysters the crab where'd that go it, it's going to other places it's going to chesapeake bay which they can't manage their waters their bay is dead so they take all our crabs and we can't buy crab meat for less than 40 dollars a pound sometimes 40 dollars a pound to buy crab meat think about that 40 dollars a pound for crab meat when I used to run some big restaurants down in the city, you're talking about spending ten, fifteen thousand dollars a day to have crab meat. Eric, I, I love that you brought up the port because to build on what you're saying, it's not just about what we can what we already produce here in our own backyard. But I just pulled this while we were talking, and the data is kind of outdated. But as of ten years ago, okay, so just to give us an order of magnitude, it says forty percent of the U.S.'s ex agricultural exports moved through our port and you talk about the value add part of the food um the food chain where we can maybe build more of our economy around that even if we inserted ourselves there and not even all the way back to the plow or the or the fishing so to speak in the fishing nets but even if we inserted ourselves in some level of the processing the packaging any of that before all the stuff moves through our port i mean that's insane to think of how many of our countries goods are moving through our port here like why are we not looking at that as an opportunity to grow the growth by here i mean of course we should always be looking at how do we get more out of taxes and how to manage all that and optimize that but i'm just thinking like how is how can we think about how business plays a role in expanding the pie and expanding the economy that moves beyond attracting people here where the money's coming from somewhere else but actually generating that money here I think there's tremendous opportunity if we're talking about just the few resources we've, we've talked about on this call to, so far. And I love you brought up the port. That's a huge asset. It's huge. I mean, that's why this entire city was founded because of its location, the mouth of the Mississippi River. Everything comes through our port. Everything does, you know? And we talk about restaurants and what we can do and sustainability. You know, when this whole thing began in March, and I think we were one of the first restaurants to close, you know, I told everyone, I said, it's going to be a 10 month summer. You know what I mean? Because once you lose spring, get the summer, traditionally, since I've been working, you know, in the early nineties, you know, in the French quarter, when I worked at Brennan's in the French quarter, you know, you knew in summertime, that was it. It was over. You know, the, the industry stopped, restaurants stopped. It just went away. That's why you have things like cooling it, restaurant week, because we know we plan as a business owner to lose money in the summer, every summer. And when this happened, you know, I said, hey, it's going to be catastrophic because I know I lose money every summer. I know big, giant restaurants budget to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars every summer. And that's something we got to work on. Why don't we have, you know, we cannot sustain our own, you know, industry as restaurants in New Orleans. You have to lose money. We're 100%. Now, I'm not going to say 100%. I'm going to say, you know, we're, we're very dependent on tourism very dependent on tourism for restaurants because we need that because we don't have that sustainable um, business model for a full year. We don't, we know it's summertime. A lot of folks leave new Orleans in the summer. They get out, they go to their second homes in Florida. They travel, the kids are out. Um, there's vacation. It's hot. It's hurricane season. The convention center doesn't book anything because people don't want to put deposits down on large, uh, conventions and possibly lose that, lose that money or reschedule because of a storm, which we're having a very active season. You know, we have to look inside. We talked about having all these restaurants. I remember, I think before Katrina, we were around five, 600 restaurants somewhere around there in the neighborhood. 
after Katrina, 10 years later, we're 1500, you know, and that's insane to me. But what's happening is you see, you know, as a young cook, when I was, you know, worked at the big restaurants, I always said, Oh, we need, we need the small restaurants. We need the small restaurants. So, you know, you're in that juvenile phase of cooking. Like you want to do all the hot, fun, trendy stuff. But we had the big restaurants, you know, the, the Antoine's, the commanders, you know, the, the Brennan's, the Galatoire's, they kind of ran the show. But now if you see the restaurant trend that's going in New Orleans, you know, I'm a restaurant owner, you know, and I'm look like some guy, you know, off the beach, you know, and, but that's the, the trend. People are opening up smaller businesses in smaller neighborhoods, more bistro, more cafe. What do you think about the whole street scene of, of turning New Orleans into like restaurants with on street dining? Like, I saw that from Turbo Square. Fantastic. The French Quarter being an open pedestrian mall, that kind of stuff. I love that. Yeah, I love that idea. But we have to go back to like, you know, when I worked in the quarter and I worked there for, you know, 14 years, the, the hardest part about working in the quarter is getting in and out of the quarter. You know, we already have no parking. There's no parking garages. We mm. don't want to build garages in those parking lots and block our view of, of the river, I guess. I don't know what it is. But to change it to a pedestrian mall and not allow vehicles in, now you're asking the thousands and thousands of thousands of hotel and restaurant and bar workers to park in an area that is traditionally not as safe as could be to park closer into where the action's going on. What, what do you do? You know, so you have to build outside, you know. And again, you know, when, when we were offered the opportunity to move outside, it's a way to generate income for the city as well, too. You you pay a lot of money to have tables outside. Trust me. You pay for the air above your balcony. You pay for your own the sidewalk that the city owns. You carry the city as an insuree on your insurance because they own it, but you maintain it. There's got to be a change in that. You know, we talked about taxation. You know, people you know think that the the misconception of restaurant owners is that we're just swimming in piles of money because we're making all kind of money. And I'm telling you right now, if you are really, 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 really good operator you might stay with anywhere from seven to 10 cents on a dollar. You know what I mean? And that's if you're great. The average is somewhere between three and five cents on a dollar because the amount of taxation, the amount of money you spend, the, the labor, the insurance, the spaces, the rent, you know, the, everything that goes on. I mean, you're talking three to five cents on a dollar. And, you know, and the, the people who are moving into these smaller restaurants are doing it because they can manage those small numbers. And we're trying to get that neighborhood place going, but without tourism, New Orleans is built on tourism. I think we need to bring people here for a different reason. You know, the Super Bowl, you know, is one of our biggest money generating events because people know New Orleans knows how to throw a party. Because we do, we've got that food, we've got that culture. We've got that walking city where you can walk from hotel to restaurant to venue, you know, and we need to bring that back. You know, the open space in the French Quarter would be amazing, but we have to protect the folks who are going there. We have to, you know, allow the folks who live in the quarter full time to keep that area of the French Quarter theirs because it's an amazing place. That ninety percent of the people who live in New Orleans have never seen behind one of those walls what their French Quarter, how beautiful it really is. Now we need to protect that. We need to protect our, you know, our, our history and our culture. But I think the port's the way to go. Well, I mean, to we go keep- back to the port. The reason that we lost the port is because the Board of Commissioners in uh, nineteen eighty four ceded. Um, consciously shifted away from a shipping economy to a tourism economy and that was how the convention center economy really started um, with the uh, what was it Um, the World's Fair so I think that that's really important to look at because there are a lot of behind-the-scenes decisions that are happening a long time ago and we think of ourselves as having this identity of uh, a tourism city it's pretty recent 
And it's not necessarily an identity we chose for ourselves. And, and Grayson, you're a big part of this uh, uh, food equation. What do you think? I've got quite a few points I want to bring up, but um, and I'm not calling anyone out. And I, I think a critical lesson in my life has been something that Martin Luther King Jr. said, that we're never trying to defeat people, we're trying to defeat policies. So just want to preface everything with that. But I've been running what I would assume is a sustainable food business in New Orleans for eight years. And I've never seen a dime from the city, the state, or the federal government to help out with anything that I've done. Um, sourcing organic food, sourcing local ingredients. I've never gotten nickel from anybody. So that's a huge issue um, on my end. I also think something that Carol was mentioning and that all of us have been talking around is that I, I think that you can make the argument, which I'm not going to do now, that, that COVID's been an indictment of the American diet because our vulnerable populations that are suffering most from COVID are suffering more than anything from a terrible diet, terrible food. Um, so I'm one that really, you know, is a proponent of public health and preventative care. So as Carol said, I would like to just maybe tear down the new hospitals that are built and just build urban farms um, and prenatal facilities and playgrounds and all of those things, because I think preventative health is something that's much more, it's not as lucrative financially, but emotionally and ethically and socially, it's much more profitable for us as a city and as a community. Um, and I think also something that we're all talking around but agreeing with for the most part is that in order to make New Orleans more attractive to other people, I think we need to address the people that live in New Orleans now and make New Orleans more attractive to the people that live here now. And that's gonna make New Orleans attractive to people that wanna come back or wanna come here. But if we cater, if we pander these people that Holly said have a huge salary, I'm not denigrating that aspect of our economy. I'm just saying we need to focus on who we are as a city and the people that define and have defined New Orleans as a city for 300 years, as opposed to hoping for somebody else, you know, however big or however small that demographic is. But if we don't make New Orleans more livable for New Orleans, then I think it's it's a moot point to want to attract other people from Savannah or Tulsa or wherever else they want to come from. Um, and then going off of what Eric said, I just think that it's critical that, and also what Carol said is that we, we have resources. We don't need to reinvent ourselves or do anything different. We just need to promote and foster, and I think cultivate the resources that we have, whether that's cultural or whether that's ecological, whether that's food, whether that's seafood, whether that's jazz, whether that's students that go to NOCA, whether that's um, poets and writers and, and, and painters that live in the Treme. These are, this is our culture, and I feel like the cultural economy has been appropriated from people that make that economy. And as Holly has been alluding to, and I, I totally understand what Ms. Palmer is saying, that we don't have control over those, those tax funds, but I, I feel, and I'm not trying to be insensitive, but it's very much a, a plantation economy where the people that generate the culture, the people that make New Orleans what it is now and have been doing for hundreds of years are still being we're, we're still being exploited and taken away from, whether that's going to Baton Rouge or whether it's Cisco or US Foods or these companies that, that just use us as a mattress to extract, extract, extract and take away and not invest locally. But as we all know, we live in a society where we can be accountable to ourselves and politically we can be accountable and have our leaders be accountable for us. And I think it's critical that we start doing that. But at the end of the day, it's a, Again, it's about that systemic structural change. And I don't feel like we can have, you know, good public health policies without help from the state, local, or federal government. Um, we can't have a seafood market like Eric was talking about unless the state 
uh, or the, the local government is going to help and incentives. I, I, as a sustainable or an organic business or whatever you want to call me, I can't compete financially with Cisco, with Restaurant Depot, with Monsanto, with Syngenta, with U.S. Foods, or with Aramark because I'm the small person. But I don't think people come to New Orleans to eat at those places or have those experiences at restaurants that serve that kind of food. You don't go to New Orleans and say, gee, I had a great meal with Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, and I'm not denigrating Bubba Gump, but I had a great meal and a great experience. <laughs> I had a great meal and a great experience at Cafe Dauphine. I had an incredible time at Kermit's Mother-in-Law Lounge. I had a great meal at Bacchanal. This is the fabric, not just economically of New Orleans, but emotionally. And I just feel like we're completely being neglected. And we have for a long time, but thankfully, I think COVID is presenting us with this, this huge opportunity for us to address socially, and I think most critically structurally, the changes that we have to make. And it's it's apparent that the changes that we have to make, they're they're visible because we see them all around us. Um, I was I was honestly almost disgusted to get a, a, a 811 or a 311 text message from the governor from, from the mayor about citizens contributing to rent, rent relief to help people from stop getting evicted from their homes like last week. Because um, again, I know that the state has the final control over an eviction court. I'm not gonna get into that you know, right now, but the fact that the government, I feel like the local to a lesser extent and the state government is asking local citizens to do what the government is meant and supposed to be doing. And not just as a citizen, but as a business owner is overwhelming and it's unacceptable. You know, another vital part of the New Orleans economy is music, you know, and uh, tourism professionals, economic pundits and politicians talk about the importance of what they call the cultural economy. But there's a disconnect here, uh, despite the fact that we pride ourselves on being the birthplace of jazz and music plays a central part in our lives from brass bands to jazz fest. Most musicians are not getting rich. Uh, now that the future of live music hangs in the balance, along with everything else, we could use this opportunity to take music and musicians seriously while we're considering how tourism restaurants and small businesses come back from the downturn. Do we just assume that music is a star system and some people are going to make it and others aren't? Or is there a way we can proactively improve the lives and the livelihoods of the, the people we're proud to claim is central to our culture? Matt, would you like to weigh in on this? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm a third-rate guitarist and enjoy playing music and love it. And you know, we trade my trade the empire for a, a, a journeyman position in a band. But I, I this is some of this comes back to I think uh, one of the the ways that this discussion is hinging, which is uh, there is an idea of wealth and resources that's running through a lot of these conversations. And I would argue that New Orleans is in fact. A culturally rich, economically poor city. We do not have the resources that we need. We are far from it. We cannot afford our drainage. We cannot fix the roads. So we pay hundreds of millions of dollars in destruction to our cars because we can't have basic roads. Like we are, if you see what real wealth looks like in other places, it is staggering and it is a different thing than what we have. So there is a very small pie. And I agree that the convention center is holding a lot of money. It's not sure. Like that's one of the only pies we've got. But so we're really sort of stuck in this place. And like, how do we build up the city for itself? I mean, one of the things I wish I think the state banned us from is raising the minimum wage. I don't know what the restaurant owners would think about that stuff, but we need there to be more just basic income in the city. The enjoy. LRA will fight that. So the what? The industry will fight that. The industry won't like that, but but... But that's one of those questions. I'm sorry. I don't know 
I'm not just saying it's it's also you know you can say government this government that but a this lot of it's also industry member, driven Kristen too Paul. and the lobbyists in baton rouge and it's like this vicious cycle i mean matt i totally agree with you but when you look at the hospitality industry the median income is twenty thousand dollars a year yeah. right and people don't realize that in in the rest of america the ami is fifty three thousand dollars in new orleans it's thirty it's thirty six thousand in new orleans so we are an incredibly poor city and and i think we have to recognize that on top of you know all of our and Matt, I'm glad you brought all of our infrastructure needs everything it is a constant drain and we do need a structural shift i mean i absolutely agree with that but and i absolutely agree with what um what grayson is saying that you know you got to focus on on the people first i mean in charleston you know, I loved um, the mayor there for many, many years said every decision he makes is first for the resident and then everything else follows. Then you get tourism then businesses want to move there. Then all these other things happen. And I totally agree with that. And I do think you've seen a shift, especially with transportation, other things of what we're doing, the complete streets work that, that I did initially. We're seeing a seismic shift in how we're redoing and retooling our city. But because we are so poor, right? We're gonna always be, we're, we're behind the thing. That doesn't, it just means that we like, I think just what you're saying here is we have to look for creative, innovative things. When you talk about the port and, and your lack of, of resources for, for fish and farming and, and the things that Carol's talking about as well, I think we should be looking at phase three for the convention center. I mean, right there, why would we wanna turn that into a tourism-based economy right there on the river when we could have something like a huge market with the boats coming in off there that would actually wind up not just being an attraction, but servicing all the restaurants and all the other businesses there too. I mean, that's how we should be looking at how we retool this. You know, uh, Just to look at the musician question, um, this is definitely the, the world that I move in. This and is writer and publisher, For all of us, Holly we Dan. can't pay our rent. So if you want to do one thing to preserve the musicians in New Orleans, the rent is not sustainable. And I, I you know, I, I have been talking around it a little bit. When, I'm, when we talk about cost of living, we are living in a state of suspension. Uh, all of the costs are as if the economy is as it was. And it isn't. And, you know, as was mentioned earlier, we don't know if convention tourism is coming back. I think it would be great to use that space in a different way. Um, I think we have so many possibilities. There's so much we can do to redistribute a lot of the wealth that we have. But first things first, people are going to start getting evicted. And the second that federal funding gets cut, we are going to live in a hellscape. It's not a joke and it is immediate. And musicians are struggling enormously. You know, there's people don't really want to pay tips for a, a Zoom performance anymore. It's, it's over. So, you know, I, I'm not, I understand that it's complex and that you can't just pay lower rent. I'm saying that the property tax issue, the reason I'm passionate about it is when I sit down and I look at the system, you cannot convince a landlord to lower rents until their costs have lowered as well. And you know, I, I, I know a lot of people that are very angry at landlords and you know, kind of just want to cancel rent. And I know it's not nearly as simple as that. I've spoken a lot to Andrea Nick Morris um, who does amazing work with housing in New Orleans. And, um, you know, she has a tremendous amount of vision, um, but no one's listening and no one's really absorbing the fact that uh, we can't keep living in the pre-COVID reality. Well, how much is Airbnb impacting the rent situation? I'm very curious, Kristen, I think you've been in the middle of that. 
Yeah, I have been. And that's why I came back, right? It was because of what the STR issue <laughs> decimated all the neighborhoods in my district. And, and quite frankly, within a very short amount of time. So, so Holly, when you look at the STR issue, within about five years, they took six to 8,000 units off the market. So if you think about it in those terms, that STRs actually took units and then put them into that vein. And this is all, you know, why I got back in this game because it was just abhorrent losing this. And that really, in certain neighborhoods, it absolutely increased to the cost of rent. And not in all neighborhoods, but in that. And then I also think on top of that is we're not building enough units, um, not just in affordable, but even market rate, et cetera. It's like the more units and business people know this, the more units that you put out, um, and you can start correcting it. We have, um, it's tough to do business. I build houses, I renovate houses. It's a very tough, it's very tough to do business in this town. But in addition to that, even in trying to go after subsidies for affordable housing, like uh, low income tax credits, you have to go to the state. The state's totally reevaluated how they give out affordable housing dollars. And now all of the benefits go towards rural um, communities as opposed to urban. So all the money that we had post Katrina that was going to affordable housing, a lot of that now has been re-diverted towards, um, towards rural. And I'm also going to say too, it's about time to start really focusing on all these vacant and blighted houses and pushing them back into commerce. And we have to be unapologetic about that. It's been 15 years past Katrina. And what we're doing is by not getting them back into commerce, we're actually exasperating the affordable housing crisis. And look, and Andronika and I go way back, and we have to, we were talking about this last few days ago. And we both are trying to find policies that we can get these properties back into commerce. Because if we don't, then you know it's again, it, it, just like you said, it, it hurts our tax base. We can't we can't get more people coming in here, and we can't get more importantly affordable housing. And you know, which is another reason why I've been focused so much on transportation because we've been consequently pushing folks to like New Orleans, eastern parts of Algiers where we have less transportation options than we did post K, right? Which is why I'm like fanatical about, you know, complete streets and ferries and, and buses, because if we don't connect people to jobs, where have you, it's, it just exasperates the whole problem, you know? One of the things I know we've been kind of focusing on this broader con topic of how we are gonna, how we can reinvent ourselves kind of in light of the pandemic. This is Carol I Markle, also wanna CLO say that I've been Loyola encouraged about University. the other thing that's been happening in our world is this, dialogue that's been happening around race and and equity and i think one of the things i'm hopeful for is that that conversation really takes root and continues here in a meaningful way because i find that like i've lived here for 10 years and while i can say okay on like technical terms it's a diverse city in the sense that 60 percent of our community i believe is african-american the fact is there's a huge difference i think we all recognize between being diverse and being a place where it's truly equitable and when you see the socioeconomic lines so clearly driven along the uh, paralleling those ra uh, the, the, the racial divide, if you will, in our city, I think it's just telling that, you know, we have to address that if we're going to preserve what's special about us and maintain that authenticity that basically makes all of us love the place that we live, but also brings those people to, to visit New Orleans. And if we don't really look at that more mindfully about how we preserve that in a responsible way by creating more equity. I think a lot of the conversation we've been having is really about that. And I think we haven't brought up the word race, but I will just say that that conversation, I think we need to be more open and explicit about the changes 
we need to make specifically around making it more racially equitable. If we're talking about reinventing New Orleans, I think that's probably the most important thing, I, in my opinion. Well, it goes back to what Grayson was saying about a plantation economy. Yes. There's an unbroken line of controlling black labor in Louisiana since its founding. And I think it's really important that we understand the way those paradigms transform and shift. When I say that the board, that the board of commissioners of the port transitioned to a tourism economy in uh, the 80s, there is a conscious decision to sell black service labor in that. And not only to sell that labor, but to sell the culture that they created out of that hardship. And to, it's particularly egregious to commodify that when you consider that that's an act of resistance. Jazz is resistance and jazz is historical memory. And we have to respect that memory and, and change the way that we do business, recognizing that so much of global prosperity is predicated on the plantation system. And it's hard, a, a lot of the work I do, I work with the Whitney Plantation and I'm a historical interpreter. And, um, you know, it's something that I like to bring into conversations as much as possible, but it's hard because we don't really have a precedent for working history into our daily lived realities. We talk about things in the abstract. Economics is something that I, I'm frustrated with economics as a field oftentimes because it's, it's, it takes place in a vacuum, you know, and, and how we understand the tensions that created New Orleans, created Louisiana, um, and how they have continued to in, inform the way that we live our lives is hugely important. Um, and we can get into uh, mass incarceration. I mean, I've lived in the Ninth Ward since I uh, moved to New Orleans, and it's been a brutal education in the way the city works and who is listened to. You know, and a lot of it, a lot of my neighbors who grew up in a lot of times the Desire Projects or the Florida. Um, would go to work in the service industry, and I would see this too. I worked in the service industry. I've been paying my rent through that, for, you know, as long as I've lived in New Orleans as well. And the racism I see in those kitchens and the way that people will hire um, formerly incarcerated people as a way uh, to hold it over their heads and treat them abysmally, um, it, it, it'll chill your blood. The COVID-19 pandemic has pushed both the global economy and the U.S. economy into uncharted waters. Now, here in New Orleans, after a few years of buoyant growth, we're back in a position that is relatively familiar, recovering from a disaster. We've done this before. As significant as the city's current financial downturn is, and it is significant, we know we're not going to be destroyed by it. We're all determined that we're not going to lose our restaurants, we're not going to lose our musicians, we're not going to lose our small businesses, we're going to find a way to coexist with tourists at whatever numbers they return in. But none of this is going to happen if we just cross our fingers and hope for the best. Looking back, it's easy to say New Orleans bounced back from Hurricane Katrina, but that bounce back was the result of a huge amount of hard work, dedication, and determination to save the city by every single New Orleanian. This recovery is going to be no different. Thankfully, we don't 
have the physical devastation to deal with, but we do have an economy to rebuild. It's going to take everybody's contribution in one way or another to keep the city the great American treasure that it is. Maybe you're a musician or a small business owner who's dedicated to staying here and staying in business. Or you're a citizen who makes a point to buy local, to support a local restaurant, to go online and buy a t-shirt from a local musician's website. Each in our own small way, we can all do something to help New Orleans get our thriving economy back. And we all have a voice to talk about it, to share our troubles and to encourage each other with ideas and concrete plans for getting to the other side of this unforeseen pandemic-induced economic downturn. Thank you to everybody in New Orleans who is hanging in there. And today, special thanks to my guests for hanging in here for the past 60 minutes. Council member Kristen Palmer, Chef Eric Cook, owner of Grigri Restaurant, Holly Devon, senior editor at Anti-Gravity Magazine and founding editor of The Iron Lattice, Matt Wisdom, founder and CEO of Turbo Squid, Carol Markowitz, COO and senior vice president of finance at Loyola University, and Grayson Gill, owner of Belgard Bakery. Kristen, Eric, Holly, Matt, Carol, and Grayson, thank you all so much for joining me today on this special edition of Out to Lunch, New Orleans at the Crossroads. We edited this show to fit into our time slot here at WWNO. You can hear a longer version of this, our entire unedited conversation, by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, it's neworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me for this special edition of Out to Lunch, New Orleans at the Crossroads. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.